The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Well, allow me to lead us in prayer one more time as we come to the preaching of God's Word this morning. And Father, we do. We, we come before you once again uh, with eager anticipation, knowing that you are God, that you are good, that you are for us, and you've preserved your word where you continue to speak and sanctify us, shape our hearts from within. And, and our desire this morning as we behold your face, as we seek together to, to grow in our knowledge of our God, um, we ask that from your word and from the preaching of it that you would grant uh, a measure of grace this morning to, to bless your church, to, to, to build her up, to edify her in this most holy faith that we share together in, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm delighted to bring God's word this morning. Um, and the storyline continues, does it not? This is a big storyline of Joseph. The storyline continues in the saga of Joseph and his brothers becoming reconciled, where all is made right once again, and through it all this is the saving of God's people. We don't want to miss that, right? The nation Israel. For it's, it's always helpful. It's helpful to always hold <clears throat> both lenses before our eyes, as we can see here and where we are, and where we are at in Genesis, both the narrow lens and the wide-angle lens. The narrow. You know, progress is being made in the revealing of hearts that are showing fruit of repentance in Joseph's brothers, which ultimately leads up to the brothers being not only restored in their relationship with Joseph, but at a much better place than what it was at, than it was wherever it was ever at before. You know, that's, so that's the narrow lens view, okay? It's very important in every way. The wide-angle lens, God is preserving his chosen people. The nation Israel, through this famine, and thereby bringing them to Egypt as he said he would do. You may be thinking, as he said he would do? Yeah, that's exactly what he said he would do. In fact, it was all the way back in chapter 15 of Genesis when God made a covenant with Abraham by sacrifice. He spoke this multiple times to Abraham, but this one was by sacrifice when he said, look toward heaven. It was that one. We said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, him Abram, so shall your offspring be. Like, I'm going to give you this land to inherit, Abram. He was just a few of them at that moment. So shall your descendants be, your offspring be. But, but watch this in line 13 through 16 of that same chapter in Genesis 15. God speaks of this nation through the line of Abraham being sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Listen to this. He says, so as the sun was going down, this is in that moment, God and Abram, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, his descendants, shall come back here 
in the land of Canaan, here in, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The offspring of Abram, who would, who would become or be renamed by God as Abraham. So, you know, his offspring, known as the nation Israel, will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. We actually hear God reference this same very promise to Jacob, who God would rename Israel. That's how that name comes to be. Just remind ourselves, Jacob and Israel, same person. God will reference this same promise to Jacob, Israel, same person. God will reference this same promise to him in a vision of the night, just two chapters from where we are today. Just two chapters down the road from where we are today, starting in verse 3 of chapter 46, God says, I am God. In a vision to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Like, there it is. Israel's descendants, who are also descendants of Abraham, numbering a bit over 70 at the present of where we're at, God will send to Egypt as sojourners, during which time he will make them into a great nation. When you continue reading beyond Genesis and into Exodus, the next book of the Bible, you will find this people, the nation Israel in the land of Egypt as slaves. For how long? 400 years. 400 years. As many years God promised they would be afflicted. At which point, God delivers them from captivity and judges Egypt in the process. God's word fulfilled. Just as he said things would go, so they did. His word never fails. And how do they get from the promised land, Canaan? How do they get from there to then be in Egypt? We are smack dab in the middle of the unfolding events that lead up to it. Wide angle lens. God's story of redemption is always being told. The famine, Joseph, all these events in the narrow lens are means by which God's story of redemption is being brought into fruition. These events are important and have tremendous purpose, both, both then, when they were taking place, when they are happening, and also now, for us to look back on and learn for instruction by lessons we observe from them, but, but above all, how, by God's providence, we see him fulfilling his promise to make all things right after sin entered his creation. And it's similar for us today. It's similar for us to today. Our, our narrow lens portion, things directly involving our lives, are an important part in God's story. But it's not the main part. Jesus is. God's story of redemption as a plan for the fullness of time is always centered on Jesus, by whom and through whom God is accomplishing his work of salvation to redeem that which the curse of sin brought about. To unite all things in him, in Jesus. Unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in, guess who? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Eternal purpose. This, God is always at work in his creation, bringing about, bringing about. Jesus accomplished it in full by coming to earth, 
living a sinless life, a life we fail to live. He lived in our place and then brutally died on a Roman cross by crucifixion, receiving the judgment we we as sinners justly deserve for our sin and was raised. Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification, who is now ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns as King Jesus. God's triumph over Satan, sin, and death has been accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, in the here and now, as his people, the the church, are awaiting the consummation, the, the complete realization of it when he returns, as he promised to. So in this space, the space in between the completed work in and through Jesus and the realization of it, God continues to bring about his story of redemption through Jesus Christ in our lives and in the world in which we live, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Same as he did with Joseph, he does so with us. So, dear saints, let's you know, keep both lenses in view always. Both the narrow lens and the wide-angle lens. Romans 8.28, I think, holds the tension of both these quite well. And we know that for those who love God, all things, narrow lens view, right? All things happening in our life right now. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What was his purpose? Eternal purpose, right? Holding things up in the wide angle view, according to the eternal purpose he has realized in Christ Jesus, his son. Wide angle view. God's good purposes will always come to pass. So it's, it's so important in the Christian life to keep in perspective both lenses, the narrow and both important, right? The narrow lens and the wide-angle lens. You can call it perhaps like spiritual 2020 vision. Okay, so the wide-angle lens view for chapter 44 of Genesis, in which we find ourselves in this morning, Movement closer to God's people being brought from Canaan into Egypt. A very small number of people, 75 of them, who will then multiply into a great nation while in Egypt during those 400 years before God delivered, delivers them for his own glory. That's, that's the wide-angle lens. The narrow the narrow, which we will put our focus on for the bulk of our time this morning, is that of, uh, is that of the, the, the approaching climactic moment when Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. It's like from the outcome of chapter 45, right? Well, this is all leading up to that moment. Joseph, you recall. Joseph, just, you know, compassion-motivated, has been patiently making careful and wise arrangements so that the fruit of repentance would be revealed from the hearts of his brothers. If indeed it is there, and it is, is working, because there has been evidence of it manifested. Joseph now, though, Joseph turns up the heat to max. He turns it up to max as a means for full heart disclosure. His brothers returned to Joseph from the land of Canaan on the terms of life given by Joseph. That was the previous chapter. To bring their youngest brother with them so that their words, as Joseph said, so that your words will be verified. They do so. Their words are verified and Joseph treats them to this, like this big lunch banquet, big banquet where they all ate and drank and were married together with Joseph. They had a great time with Joseph. Chapter 44 moves into the next scene in this saga, a scene leading up to Joseph being fully convinced, 
leading up to him being fully convinced that his brothers have a changed heart. He, Joseph, sees godly sorrow in them producing repentance evidenced by their actions. What are their actions? Selfishness to selflessness. Selfishness to selflessness, which is the, it's the, the truth for us to, to all hone in on this morning. Selfishness to selflessness. Really, another expression of what it means to repent. Sin is self-serving, so to turn away from sin is dying to self. Selfishness to selflessness. Something that really can just, it can take many shapes and forms in how it is expressed by one bearing a godly grief for their sin. God's word provides a filled out and clear explanation of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. As it is, Paul's writing here, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. In other words, fully convinced by the fruit of all your actions that your repentance is genuine. For see what earnestness. You guys catch those words? Earnestness, this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Just layers it on there of convincing manifestations of this godly grief, this godly sorrow, this genuine repentance. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The events in chapter 44 lead up to Joseph seeing this very godly grief in his brothers. Their cruel mistreatment of him back when he was 17 had acts of selfishness that was just all tied up in it. But now, what he sees in them, what he sees is acts of selflessness. Long intro. (laughs) I know. You guys still with me? I need some nods. Yes. Okay, good. Good. Selfishness to selflessness. So what are the key points in chapter 44 that lead up to Joseph seeing this change in his brothers, which produced a godly sorrow or a godly grief. There are two. We're going to focus on two. There are two. Number one, testing by trial. Testing by trial. And number two, cash on delivery, which will make more sense when we get there. Cash on delivery. First one, testing by trial, set up by Joseph for us in verses 1 through 15 of this chapter 44 in Genesis. Testing by trial. And, and we Christians, we, we know this. We know this. Yet it's, it's always a, help, a healthy reminder for us to consider. Trials in life come to us all. And they do indeed test us. Test our hearts to be specifically, as God words, God's word says, test us for our good. But let's put, some, let's put some scripture behind this truth. Start with James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. Moving on to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Hallelujah. Amen. Yes, we do. Though, what? Though here it is. Watch out. Though now for a little while, if necessary, and this is in the in-between, right? If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that, there's the purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, like the result, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter adds a bit later in this same epistle, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Like, why are you caught off guard? Don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to you better believe it, test you. As though something strange were happening to you, which I just find humorous. <laughs> like, this is strange. No, it's not. This is normalcy in the Christian life. Don't be surprised as though something strange is happening to you, but we know it. Rejoice. We're supposed to rejoice at this. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you see that continue that? The continuity there, sufferings, we rejoice, and also what's to come. Also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed at his coming. But let's round this out. One more. Round this out with Romans 5, 3 through 5. We, guess what? Rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because the because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, abundantly clear, abundantly clear from God's word, God's good purposes behind trials. Joseph here sets one up to befall his brothers. He sets one up. And mind you, Joseph has no idea of the conversations that have taken place between his brothers and their father Israel. He does not know what has been said, namely, pledged by Judah. He's not aware of that. It's made known to him today, later on in chapter 44, but at this point he doesn't know. Never before. What he does know, what he does know is their history involving him, who shares the same mother as Benjamin. And so Joseph makes careful arrangements to set up a situation where Benjamin's life is in jeopardy in a similar manner as his, as Joseph's life was, when he was thrown into the pit by his brothers, who did not listen to the the distress of his soul as he begged them, don't follow through with what you're doing. Like, what are you doing? And they ignored him and they... We're home. He sets up the same scenario, but this time with Benjamin. 21 years later, this scenario has returned, but this time with Benjamin. Verses 1 through 15 lays out the details of this clearly. The brothers, they head out to return home. At first light, the very morning after they feasted together with merriment with Joseph. But unbeknownst to them, Joseph instructs his steward the night before in verses 1 and 2, 1 and 2, he says, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, who is Benjamin, with his money for the grain. Like, and this is all going as planned. And the men are en route back home with all brothers and company, right? This is good. Perhaps even having fond memories of the day before with Joseph. They were eating and drinking with merriment. 
You know, they were fearful for their lives when they came, when they returned to Egypt. But now, like, all seems in good order. Like, they were told, God, put the money back in your sacks. Like, God's showing you favor. Feast. I mean, it was, this is good times. All seems in good order, but they, but they only go a short distance before the testing by trial comes as carefully arranged by Joseph. And testing of trials often come that way, don't they? I don't recall in my life, or in scripture for that matter, a seeking out of trials. I don't seek out trials. It's quite the contrary. I do my best to avoid them. And I believe that is common among us all. You know, the, the, the aim to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, is shared by all believers, isn't it? As 1 Timothy 2, 1 through, 3, 1 through 3 instructs us to, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may, there's a purpose for it, <laughs> that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. Not only good, it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. This is good. This is, this is not seeking out testing by trial. But testing by trials come. They come in our endeavor to faithfully live out a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is, let's be clear, this is not speaking of a self-inflicted pang or pangs as a result of poor choices. That's different. They come. They do come and certainly can and should have a refining, a correcting effect on our lives. But some trials are different altogether. Not brought about due to the consequences of sin, but your heavenly Father, motivated by perfect love, by compassion, by perfect love, our heavenly Father allows them and administers them to do some training in our lives to increase faith, to further along his good work in sanctifying you more into the image of his son. He allows them and administers them for our good in much the same manner this testing by trial comes to Joseph's brothers. The manner being completely unaware to them. Completely unaware. Like sun is shining at first light, which means light is coming up, right? Sun is shining. It's rising. It's shining. Sacks are loaded with food. All family is in towed in the direction you want to go. They want to go back home to Canaan. Papa Israel will be thrilled to see everyone. Benjamin, Benjamin with them. This is a good morning they are having. And then, bam, things stop short. Things change in a moment. In the case here with Joseph's brothers, they come in the form of accusations. Accusations they plead innocent to, but, but when investigated, discover they are not. Testing by trials has begun. Have you found testing by trials to come in this manner? Like unexpected, like what happened? What? Out of nowhere. Things were going in a good direction. Like the sun was shining and then all of a sudden you find yourself completely in this moment of testing, of difficulty. So I, yeah, I believe the answer is yes. Yes for all of us. So if yes, then, then, then what is it we can learn from them since they do come in like manner? Knowing this, and there's years ahead if the Lord should tarry, 
It's likely going to happen again at some point if wherever we find ourselves in the moment, knowing this, what can we learn since they do come in this manner? I'll offer two, two things we can learn. Preparedness, preparedness, first off, preparedness. Since we know they do come, in fact, we are to count them joy. You know, we, we heard repeatedly rejoice when they come because of what they produce in us and the testing of our hearts. But we don't know when they come or in what form they will take because there's all sorts of varieties of forms trials have. Preparedness for them is what we can always be doing. Always be doing, always being prepared. So how do we prepare ourselves? Fortunately, it's not complex, but it does take consistency. It does take consistency, much like, much like being prepared for a race of sorts. It takes regular training if you are to compete well. Same with being prepared for trials. So how is a Christian to train themselves? 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil. Do you see the training there? We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And training in godliness is just living out an obedient life to his word of what it means to be a Christian. In a similar vein, in a similar vein, the exhortation of Barnabas in Acts 11.23, applies so well here. It applies so well. It says in that verse, when he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's a, that's a wonderfully concise way to prepare ourselves for the testing of trials. Train ourselves for godliness, you know, putting into practice what it means to be a Christian and remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, which those are all woven together, but, but that's how we prepare ourselves. That constancy of training ourselves for godliness and being faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And this is all brought about... <clears throat> all brought about by regular intake of the living word of God and obedience to it by the power of the Holy Spirit as it shapes your thinking and heart affections according to God's will along with those who call upon the same Lord. Should I repeat that? Yeah. This training, this preparation is brought about by regular intake of the living word of God and obedience to it by the power of the Holy Spirit as it shapes your thinking and heart affections according to God's will along with those, not in isolation, but along with those who call upon the same Lord. This is how we prepare ourselves for the certainty of testing by trials that bear little, if any, warning when they come. And come they do for us all. For good purpose, which, which then presents the second thing to learn from them. And that is, we are to learn from them. <laughs> we are to learn from them. When, when you find yourself in a trial, ask the Lord, God, what is it you're desiring to teach me? And our loving Father often says, like, the same thing I've been trying to. You know, I'm just joking there, but oftentimes it is. Another lesson of the same lesson. You need another course. But maybe not. But the bottom line is, like, what do you, what do you want to teach me? 
I recognize I'm in a trial. I've been prepared for it. I'm facing it. I'm enduring. It's building character. But precisely, what, did, what is it that you're putting your finger on that you want to teach me? Ask the Lord that. that, that that's a prayer that is guaranteed to be answered as you ask and seek the answer in his word and in prayer. As you're seeking his word, as this question is, is, is placed before the Lord, if you're, and you're seeking to know, like, he will, he'll answer that. He always does. He's a God, a father who we can be confident will answer that prayer. So in short, like, be teachable. Be teachable, be formable, be formable in his hands for your good. This is why testing by trials come. To us all for good purpose. Same as here with Joseph's brothers. As we return to the unfolding events, Joseph's brothers finding themselves in a very similar situation to when they acted in absolute selfishness at the expense of Joseph's life and the grief of their father. It wasn't just Joseph, though he was definitely central. Remember the father? Don't forget him. He's back home. He was lied to, heartbroken, and, and for 21 years now still. Absolute selfishness at the expense of their lives. But now, with Benjamin's life in jeopardy, how will they respond? How will they respond this time? The men's sacks are quickly unloaded from the donkeys, opened up, opened up and searched, starting with the eldest of them to the youngest. Joseph's doing that again, similar to how he arranged them the day before when they had lunch together, oldest to youngest. Him doing so, I, I see as a tactic. I see as a tactic to just turn that heat up to the max as a means for full heart disclosure in his brothers. Adding even in verse 15, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Like you can't get anything by me, guys. Striking terror of him before their eyes. And the brothers, to the brothers' dismay, but as planned by Joseph, it is Benjamin who, has, who is the culprit in having Joseph's cup in his sack. And with this discovery, they return to the city to face Joseph once again. So it's the moment of truth. It's the moment of truth. Have, have you ever had, have you ever said, or has it ever been said to you, your mouth wrote a check, your body can't cash? Judah, along with his brothers, find themselves at this point of discovery. Can they, and in particular, can Judah deliver what he pledged to his father? What his mouth wrote, is he ready to cash in? And this is where we get the phrasing of our second and concluding point, cash on delivery. Wrapping up the remainder of the chapter, verses 16 through 34. Cash on delivery. The brothers, accused and found guilty, have returned to Joseph with just no defense to offer. Judah's plea to Joseph in verse 16, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also in whose hand the cup has been found. This plea of Judah has no persuasive effect on Joseph, despite it revealing two significant things about his brothers. Number one, guilt is present. Guilt is present, which Joseph knows they are not guilty concerning the cup. So the guilt coming through loud and clear is the guilt for the wrong done to Joseph so many years ago. And then second, they insist, as much as it is in their power to do so, they insist 
that all will equally suffer the consequences for Benjamin's guilt. They are united to him. United to him. At the cost of self, they act on behalf of the well-being of Benjamin, of another. This is in direct contrast to their treatment of Joseph 21 years ago. Selfishness to selflessness is coming through. This is good to be seen. Very good to be seen. But, but Joseph is going for full disclosure. <laughs> the full distance for full disclosure of their heart. In verse 17, he in essence says, no, uh-uh, no deal. All, all you can be innocent. I'll let all you guys be innocent and go home to your father. But your brother, Benjamin, guilty of having my cup, he stays as my servant. He's staying. A total remade scenario of when his brothers closed their ears to the outcries of Joseph's distressed soul and continued home without him to give news of his death to their father, Jacob. (laughs) Joseph turns it all the way to that same point. No, you guys can go. You're innocent. He's staying. Very much the same scenario. So what now? What now? The remaining verses, 18 through 34, is that of Judah retelling to Joseph of the pledge he made to his father and all the details concerning the welfare of Benjamin and Jacob and how they are tied together. Verse 32 states the pledge Judah made to his dad. The the check his mouth wrote, you could say. Pledging for the safety of his brother Benjamin. If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. The moment of truth has arrived. It's the point of discovery. Is there cash on delivery for this pledge? Will Judah follow through? Will he deliver with his life what his mouth said he would? Verses 33 and 34. Now, therefore, please let your servant. Did you guys catch when Ben read that passage? How many times he was talking servant? It was just, that's all you heard almost. Just a little side note. Now, therefore, Is he going to deliver? Now, therefore, Judah says, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. He's guilty in your eyes, but let him go back. Let me stay. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that will find my father, that would find my father. Indeed, indeed, Judah delivers. Judah delivers. Judah acts with full conviction on what he pledged to his father. His body cashed in the full measure of the check his mouth wrote. The chief concern for Judah and his brothers is for the well-being of Benjamin and their aged father. This, again, is in complete contrast to the time when they threw Joseph into the pit, disregarded him. You're dead. They were to navigate. Yeah, just just disregarded him and and little concern for their father who would would be left to believe his favored son was not only dead, but torn by wild beasts. I mean, that doesn't help, right? His last image that he pictures is a beast shredding apart his favored son as he looks at the the coat that just ripped with blood. I mean, that's brutal. It's brutal enough to know he's dead, but to add that to it, what a shift. The full disclosure of his brother's hearts is complete. It is complete. Selfishness has been changed to selflessness. Greater love has no one than this, right? That someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. 
And this is beheld in Joseph's eyes as he's looking upon his brothers right now. Like he is seeing that. And if you look at like the next passage in 45, like he is overwhelmed. We'll get there. But it just cracks me up. He sends everyone out of the room and they hear him wailing, wailing through the closed doors as he's revealing himself to his brothers. Why is he wailing? Because he's seeing this transformation of heart in full disclosure. Like it's there. It's complete. Same as it is beheld in our eyes when we look upon Jesus. When we look upon Jesus, John 15, 13, being the words of Jesus, speaking specifically of what he would do for his people, for his friends. Did Jesus cash in on what his mouth wrote? He expressed it many times to his disciples, didn't he, through the, through the Gospels? Yeah, over and over he was, he was writing that check, you could say. John 10, 11, being another one. Let's just read that one. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Did Jesus deliver? Each of the gospel accounts attest that he did. We'll read from Luke's gospel to hear one of them. Luke chapter 23. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now the centurion saw what had taken place. He praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, which which was not a few, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their chests. Why didn't they bring Titus? They couldn't deny what they just saw. What they just saw, that an innocent man, that a holy man died. Of that moment, they couldn't almost bear what they witnessed. The epitome of selflessness is what they witnessed. The epitome of selflessness. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. The words of Jesus that precede this very statement he made and delivered on is a commandment for his followers. The born-again Christians, the saints of the Most High God, and, and, and it is to do what? It is to do what? What do you think it's to do? John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Selflessness is the way of our Lord. Let's pray. And Father, I just want to hang there for a little bit, considering that delivery of that no greater love is this. That someone laid down his life for his friends. And these very words you spoke, you promised to your friends, to your beloved, to your disciples, us Christians, us believers, you delivered. And even leading up to it, the the strain, the sweating of droplets of blood because of the dreadfulness of following through with what it meant to deliver on this promise. You were faithful. You gave everything. You laid down your life for the sheep. And Father, we recognize whenever we repent, 
we choose the way of the love of Christ. As I reflect upon that guy, that that, that turning away, that turning from selfishness, from self-serving as sin is, to selflessness, turning to you, that it's about you, it's about loving others, about loving one another, that that is the love of Christ. And God, this is something we want to, we want to embody. We want to be in your love and to communicate your love in word and deed. And so I ask, God, that you would lead us in such daily repentance. For even as we sung this morning, we are prone to wander. We are prone to selfishness. And not just a little. That's just a daily thing. Help us be quick to recognize it. Help us choose the the love of Christ to to have hearts that are um, quick to bear a godly grief, a godly sorrow that leads to life. I pray this, Heavenly Father, for us as a church family. And again, we thank you, Jesus, that you are the epitome of selflessness. That not only do we have your word of truth proclaiming what love is, but we have your life, that you demonstrated it to the full measure. There's no denying how, how you are for us, how you gave it all, that we may have it all in you. Apply, Father, these truths to our heart, individually and as a church. We rejoice in you. We rejoice in sufferings and trials. You permit that you ordain according to your will for our good, knowing the fruit that they bear in our lives. Help us be prepared for them. Help us learn from them. And help us be ones who reflect this love that we've been learning about this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.